If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the 13th chapter of Acts this morning. And so if you are visiting with us today, if you're new here, I just want to bring you up to speed a little bit. Um, our senior pastor, Dr. Weldon, has, has been really for a while now walking systematically through uh, uh, the book of Acts with us. Uh, last week was Easter. We went a little different route uh, for that, but normally we just walk through books of the Bible together. That is our methodology, and currently we are in Acts. Uh, and moving through this book, as we've worked our way through it, we've seen the foundation of the church being laid. Uh, we've seen the transformation of these really just terrified peasant fishermen into what have become ferocious evangelists. Uh, we've seen sermons, we've seen miracles, we've seen multitudes of people being healed, we've seen varying degrees of persecution up to this point. We've seen church officers appointed. We've seen divine appointments between uh, deacons on the road and, and, and roadside conversions. We've seen baptisms. And so we're just jumping in this morning uh, to a story that's continuing to unfold, continuing to play out. Now, the last time we were in this book, uh, we were in chapter 12, and Dr. Weldon pointed out that at the beginning of chapter 12, Herod, uh, this is Herod Agrippa I, was on the rampage. Uh, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of those sons of thunder, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, had been killed. Peter was in prison. And so things were, uh, things were going bad. All right? Th- things are not in a good place at this point. If you're starting any enterprise, I don't care what it is, and two of your big three are dead and in prison, You've got an uphill battle in front of you, and that's exactly what we see here. But then at the end of chapter 12, the paradigm is totally shifted. It is completely inverted. Herod is dead uh, in a very graphic way. Peter has miraculously been set free, really just walked out of the prison. And then in 1224, it says, the word of God increased and multiplied. So in the face of what looked to be an all but certain demise of the early Christian movement, uh, the end of what had up until this point been called the way, God had stepped into the frame and in a very powerful way carried it through the darkness and into new light. Uh, And where we left off last time, Barnabas and Saul were leaving Jerusalem. They're headed back to Antioch. They had had been there to take a gift uh, to the church there in Jerusalem who were enduring a fame a famine, and, and, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. So if you, again, if you have your Bible, we're in Acts 13. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and we'll just go, uh, we're just going to go a few verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know how inadequate I am for for the job set before us. And so what I would ask now is that you would come and really get me out of the way. Uh, that you would come, that you would send your Holy Spirit on this place, that your word might speak to us, that we might hear from you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The church at Antioch is really a case study uh, of the missional church. It's it's here that in chapter 11, the disciples were first called Christians. 
And listen, this, this town, Antioch, is a, it's an important city. Uh, depending on the historian that you talk to, it's either the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, it's about the same size as Ephesus, and that's really where the discrepancy comes. But it is, it is only smaller that we know uh, behind Rome itself and then the great city of Antioch. Okay, and so this is a major hub in, in the Roman world. It is a place where things are moving. It's a vibrant city. It's a living city. Uh, people want to be there. And this is where we're going to see this, this movement begin. Situated strategically on the Orontes River, 16 miles from a major seaport in Seleucia, Antioch is going to become the hub for the early Christian missionary movement. And so here, we are really entering into the third section of the book of Acts. Or early on, uh, specifically the first seven chapters, the first seven chapters of this book, we see the early Christian movement in and around Jerusalem. They really did not venture out of there. Uh, and, and chapters 8 through 12, following the murder of Stephen, they move. And, and listen, I would, <laughs> I'd contend they ran out of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, a lot of people give the disciples more credit than they probably deserve at this point. When stones started getting thrown at people, they moved on out of Jerusalem. That's kind of how that worked. Um, and they're basically running away from a young Pharisee named Saul, who we're told was ravaging the church. And this pushes them and us into the second section where they enter into Judea and Samaria. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of this book, all the way back to the beginning of this chronicle of the movement of the Holy Spirit through the known world, we see that what Jesus said in 1.8 is actually happening. They are his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And now just as Jesus said, we're going to see the movement to the ends of the earth. So in a real sense, chapter 13 begins what we would call the missionary era. And there's a couple of things to note about the church in Antioch. The first thing would be this. It was an established body of believers. It was an established body of believers. We know that both Barnabas and our now converted Pharisee Saul have both been teaching there. So the people are being taught the truth. Uh, they're being challenged. They are rooted in the scriptures and have a firm apostolic foundation. And, and then the Spirit's just moving there. Uh, the Spirit is moving. People are being saved. They're being called unto new life. And this thing is growing. Uh, people are committed. They're in it. Um, it. It's more than just a hobby. It's more than just a social gathering. They are, and proof of that is the reality, they're already sacrificially supporting another church in Jerusalem. Um, it is an established body of believers. The second thing I'd want us to see is that it's an integrated church. If we just look at the names of the leaders, um, we don't need to spend too much time here, but there is some serious diversity on this leadership team. Uh, Barnabas is there. He's the, he's the son of encouragement. Um, he's, he's that guy you just want to call you. You know what I mean? Like, I hope you have one of these. If you don't have one of these, we, we have some of these in our church. Just let me know. We'll get you in touch with one. There's these guys that are just, you just look forward to them calling you. Uh, when, when the phone rings and you see their number, you don't hit end and pretend like you're not there. You, you actually look forward. That's Barnabas. Um, he's that guy. He's that son of encouragement. The guy you just look forward to talking to. Uh, born on Cyprus, trained in Jerusalem. Barnabas is a leader. He's a leader. And he's a sacrificial leader. Uh, Simeon is there. Uh, they call him Niger. Um, at, at first glance, that might seem like a strange nickname. But uh, Simeon or Simon was a fairly common name. During that time, it's possible that there were a multitude of Simons or Simeons in that church. Uh, th this one was the, uh, the black one. Um, 
Some, some people believe this could have been Simon of Cyrene, uh, the one who was actually conscripted by the Romans to carry the cross of Jesus to Calvary. And I'll, and I'll concede that it's possible. Um, he, he's listed in this text just before Lucius, who we're told um, explicitly was from Cyrene. But it's a bit of speculation. What we can today reasonably ascertain <clears throat> is that this man was of dark complexion, most likely from the African continent, and that it's entirely possible he was from Cyrene. And then we, we can also know that the folks in Antioch weren't very creative with their nicknames, but that's sort of a, sort of a side note. Uh, Menaean is an intriguing character because we're told he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, he was raised as a brother to him and a foster type situation there. Uh, this is not Agrippa, who, who we saw meet his, his demise in chapter 12. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, this is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Uh, this is the Herod who had an audience with Jesus just prior to his crucifixion. And so if we were to look at these two men, if we were to put Menaean over here and Herod, both raised in the same home, and then look at the way their lives have played out, they have certainly gone different directions in terms of the kingdom of God. Okay? One is a Christ follower, the other is an antagonist of Christ and culpable to some degree in his crucifixion. Um, they certainly went different directions. But regardless of that, Menaean is a person of status. He's a person of substantive privilege. And we see him in this context working with the normal people, the common folk um, of the church in Antioch. And then Saul is just sort of mentioned at the end of the list. This is an, this is an integrated and diverse church. And we can learn some lessons from them. Uh, this church, this body of faith in Antioch, reflected the diversity of their city, their community. Uh, they didn't all look the same. And based solely on the leadership that is mentioned, just these five men, we see not only a multicultural, but a multi-ethnic body of believers. What we should see and be convicted of here is that all of the isms, all of those isms that still hold sway, all of those things that are still culturally a part of us, those divisions of of race, of gender, of age, of class, all of those things are not only unbiblical, they are violently anti-gospel. They are violently anti-gospel. The church in Antioch is a picture. It's a glimpse, a model of the Catholic and apostolic church. Now let's look at what they're doing. Because it's easy for us to think 21st century Western church and get stuck on the idea they're just sort of sitting near each other on the pews each Sunday. Uh, but they're doing a little something more here. We're told that they were worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. That's different. That's more than singing a hymn or two. That's more than entry-level church participation. They are prayerfully engaged in seeking the will of the Lord for the direction that He would send them. They, as a body, as an, as an organism, as, as members one of another, are seeking to know the next steps. I like the way Dr. Derek Thomas says this. He says they were deeply burdened about where they should go next in obedience to the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were deeply burdened about where they should go next in obedience to the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would abbreviate and just say simply put, they cared. They cared. They knew, listen, they knew that God not only saves us from something, He saves us to something and for something. Uh, they understood what all men seek. Uh, they understood purpose. 
This church, aware of their call to salvation and sensing the purpose for which they have been called to, are prayerfully seeking, prayerfully seeking the Lord's direction. And get this now. Um, don't miss this. Don't miss this. As they're praying, as they're seeking, God responds. He, he responds. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Do you see what's happening here? The church is seeking direction. It's, it's genuine. It's wholehearted. I don't want to take anything away from what they are doing, from their efforts. But this is a Holy Spirit thing. It is the Holy Spirit who leads this movement. It is the Holy Spirit who empowers this movement. The church only needs the faith to follow. They only need the faith to follow. And so they send them off. And that's, we're going to pick it up here in, in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through, gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Again, just reinforcing the truth of what's happening here. Luke reminds us in verse 4 that verse four, this, the Holy Spirit sending them out. It's not some mystical force or ideal. The Holy Spirit is a person, uh, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, J- James Montgomery Boyce encourages us in this way. He says this, Rather than thinking of the Holy Spirit being a power that we are somehow to seize and use, we are to think of Him as a person whose job it is to use us. See, that's what we're seeing here. That's what's happening here. And so our boys land on the island of Cyprus, just about 130 miles from where they had left off. In fact, on a clear day, it's possible they were able to see Cyprus from from Seleucia. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogues of the Jews and proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. Cyprus is mostly a Greek territory, uh, but there was a large Jewish population. And Barnabas being a native of Cyprus, had an extensive knowledge of the people, of the culture, and the inner workings of the Jewish network there on the island. And this really will set the stage for the pattern for the early missionary tactic and philosophy that we'll see throughout the missionary era. They're going to begin in the synagogues, and then they're going to venture out into the Gentile population. And that's what we see here in verse 5 and 6. Starting in Salamis, we don't know how long they stayed there, The missionaries moved westward across the island some 90 miles to the provincial capital there in Paphos. It's here, it's here that they run into this man, Bar-Jesus, who we're told is a Jewish false prophet. And this guy, this guy has managed to work his way into the sphere of influence of the proconsul, the chief officer of this province that's under the rule of the Senate. And that man 
invites them to come and share with him. His name is Sergius Paulus, and I love the way Luke describes this guy. He's a man of intelligence who sought to hear the word of God. There is not a man in this room today that wouldn't want everybody in here to know them by that sort of a, a man of intelligence. Everybody would embrace that really quickly, who sought to hear the word of the God. That's the only other thing we can hope, is that that's why we're here today, seeking to hear the word of God. Okay, so he's, he's not a God-fearer yet. Okay, he's not a proselyte. He hasn't bought into the Jewish system, but he's interested. He's interested. And this guy, presumably, because he's heard the message that they've been preaching en route to Paphos, invites them to come and share with him. This is just a side note. This isn't even really in this. Um, Isn't this exactly how things happen today? Isn't this exactly how things happen today? I know the temptation is, whenever we read the Bible, um, to think we're so far removed from those people 2,000 years ago. But I think I'd argue we haven't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years ago because this is exactly how things happen today. You see a good movie, you hear a good song, you read a good book, you tell people about it, don't you? Like when you hear something and it moves you, and it excites you, and it touches something in your soul, you tell people about it. And that's exactly what we see happening here. People talk about the things that they see as good and right and worthy of attention. Young and old, rich and poor, regardless of gender, race, or nationality, this is how people function. Shouldn't that be the case for the Christian with the good news? That appears to have been what was happening on Cyprus. The Holy Spirit is moving in people. They're hearing. They're believing. And they are telling, they're hearing, they're believing, and they are telling. So Barnabas and Saul end up getting the headline on this thing, but the groundwork was was done way before they ever got there. It was done way before they got there by nameless people who continued to share what they had heard. And now an opportunity is there to speak to a man of influence about the good news of Jesus Christ. And as is most often the case, opposition arises. Opposition arises. This Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus, Elamus, the magician, we're told in verse 8, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is what happens when the gospel collides with the world. There's heat. There's tension. Like, like real palpable, you can feel it, Tension, And in this case, we're given a glimpse of what life looks like for the Christian who has a heart for the lost and a desire for the redemption of a fallen world. And listen, this is exactly what we're told it would be like in John 3. In John 3, 19 and 20, Jesus said, The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do you see it? This is exactly what is happening in our text this morning, isn't it? There's no mystery here, nothing profound. This is exactly what Jesus said was happening and what would continue to happen. Bar Jesus at this point is out in the open. He's he's about to be exposed His influence, his status, and his position within the inner realm of Cypriot leadership are all in jeopardy. His house of cards is collapsing. It's collapsing. And what's worse, he sees it coming. 
He sees it coming. The light of Christ and the gospel is going to break into the well-crafted darkness of this wicked man. And listen to me. He hates the light. It's not a passive hate. This is an active hatred of the gospel. So he stood in direct opposition to it. And he did everything he could. Everything he could to prevent the proconsul from even hearing it. And now we see a transition. Uh, this is sort of a momentous point in the book of Acts here in, here in verse 9. Uh, from this point on, we don't have to go back between Saul and Paul. We just get to call him Paul. Um, so Dale was gracious enough to give me that section. At this point, he's Paul from here on out. None of, none of this confusion about what his name is. He's just Paul. And I don't think it's any coincidence that this happens exactly when it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. This guy is trying to stand in the way. This, this false prophet is trying to stand in the way. He's trying to prevent the gospel from being shared. Paul's not having it, and he doesn't play around here. Um, he, he's going to work a contrast here, and it's actually kind of entertaining. He's not going to be subtle. Um, he's going to be pretty brutal. Um, the name Bar-Jesus meant son of Jesus. Okay, that it's, it's, That's just literally the name. Now, we can't prove that he chose that name in order to attach himself to the rising fame of Jesus Christ, but it's possible, and Paul is going to seize on that. So in a, instead of a son of Jesus, Paul calls him a son of, the, son of the devil. Yeah, he calls him an enemy of all righteousness. And then he says this about the guy, that he is full of deceit and villainy. Full of deceit. This is strong. Seriously? Like, I almost feel bad for the guy a little bit at this point. But this should teach us something about how seriously the church should take our faith. And Paul's not even finished yet. In verse 11, we see Paul explaining what's coming next. Bar-Jesus is stricken blind, mist and darkness fall upon him, and we see this self-proclaimed prophet, one who could supposedly tell those around him what was coming next. We see this man is now groping around for someone to lead him by the hand. Groping around for someone to lead him by the hand. This is the gospel. This is what it does. It creates tension. It creates heat. And all of this, all of this, if you look back at verse 12, happens in front of Sergius Paulus. It happens in front of this proconsul. He saw it. He was a witness to it. He had heard the story. He had heard the gospel. And now he had seen the power of God. And then we're, we're told in verse 12, look at it with me. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're told that he believed. He believed. And, and look at what really got him. Yes, he had seen the power of God. He had seen that. But what he was astonished at was the teaching of the Lord. How often do we fail to stand in awe of the teaching of the Lord? Uh, this seems to have had an effect on this man. People have a hard time agreeing about what this belief really means. Uh, does it mean that he came to a saving faith? Does it mean that he just understood that Bar-Jesus was a manipulative liar? Um, I'm not propping myself up to argue with those much wiser than I, but I, I will take a stand on this one. This word believe in the Greek occurs 14 times. 14 times in the New Testament. And in every one of those, every one of them, there is the implication of trust and what is faith apart from trust? Trust implies expectations. Expectations imply hope. If you remove trust from faith, 
you have rendered it impotent. You've neutered it of its meaning. You've stolen its essence. And so what we're seeing today, what I would argue in this passage, until I'm blue in the face, is the first totally Gentile convert to Christianity. We're seeing a man who has heard the gospel, who's witnessed the power of God, and we're seeing him come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, through the use of feeble men, has stepped into the frame and he's regenerated this man. He's breathed new life into him. He's given him ears to hear. He's given him eyes to see and called him from darkness and into the light against great opposition and ultimately, ultimately, for his own glory. This is what God does. God saves. God redeems. He steps into our fallen, darkened world and he brings the light. He brings the light. He makes himself known to his people and his chosen instrument, his method, the method that God has ordained for the communication of this good news is people. It's people just like us. Just like us. That's why Peter could write to the early church in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and all that sounds great. Then he says this, A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'd hate for us to miss that, so I'm going to read it one more time. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, and into His marvelous light. This is our purpose. This is our purpose. And more than that, in Acts 17, Paul is going to tell the men in Athens that not only does God care about your salvation, not only does He have your salvation in mind, He has your situation in mind. So in Acts 17 it says, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, in order that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. He's determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God not only knows when and where you are, Scripture tells us that He planned that, that He foreordained that. You are where you are because God wrote that into being before the foundation of the world. And this is what we're seeing on Cyprus. People are realizing their purpose. They're sharing this good news and others are hearing. And guess what they're doing? They're telling other people too. It's profound, I know, but they are. They're actually telling people. Just like that good movie, just like that book or that song that means so much to you, the gospel has become important. It's become worthwhile and they're sharing it. Now you, might be, you might be saying, well, that's, that's pretty heavy. Um, That's more than I can bear. I can't be all of that on my own. I'm not like Paul. I'm not like Paul. I can't be a priest. I'm not a proclaimer of the excellencies of God. That's just just too much for me. And I'll give it to you. You're right. You are absolutely right. It is too much for you. You can't do that on your own. But the beautiful promise of Jesus is that you aren't on your own. You aren't on your own because He will not leave us in this alone, so you are not alone in this. See, it's just as Moses told Joshua 
before commissioning him for the work of leading Israel into the promised land. Just before he died in Deuteronomy 31, this is what Moses said to, to young Joshua. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It is the Lord who goes before you. It is Yahweh who goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Jesus gave us the same promise in John 14, 16, when he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. To be with you forever. You see, you are not alone in this. You're not alone. And Scripture tells us you never will be. You never will be. And this is our hope. This is our trust. This is our faith. This is our confident expectation in our God. And he says, this is who I am. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning. Thank you for this body of believers here. I pray that what you would do in us, uh, in this community, uh, on this globe, even in our own homes, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in you, that you would pour out your Spirit on us. Let us be a light to a dark and dying land. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.